That's what John's talking about today. He's going to use some peculiar terms, and uh, some of it will be reminding us of things that he's already taught. But when you're looking at his style of writing, and he uses things like, my dear friends, or little children, he's compiling his arguments and his statements from a place of uh, familial territory, where he's using family language. And so you're going to see that play out in an entire 21 verses. We're going to get through all of them this morning. So as he closes out this letter, you're going to see some characteristics of a person born of God. What do I mean by that? Because that sounds like a really churchy type phrase to say that someone is born of God. And it sounds churchy or it sounds like Christianese, but actually John is writing this. Remember, he also wrote a gospel. And in that gospel, uh, the gospel of John, uh, being born of God was not a churchy thing. Jesus actually talked about it in John chapter 3 when he was having a conversation with this teacher and philosopher by the name of Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, unless... In order for you to inherit or enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And, and man, that confused Nicodemus. You're like, man, why is Jesus using such a churchy term, being born again? That's really Christianese. It wasn't. Jesus had to explain it. That being born again or being born of God means that we have this relationship with Jesus and are actually born into a relationship with God, being a part of his forever family. And so John is using this familial terminology to help us. What does it mean to be born of God? What does it mean to be called, here it is, to be called a Christian, a little Christ, one who is born of God? And he gives several characteristics. Some of them just come from the things that he's already talked about in his letter or in his sermon. There's a few others that are new, so we're going to talk through each one of those. So each point this morning is, a Christian, or one who is born of God, is. Okay? So here's the first one. A Christian is a person who loves God and others. We've heard this for several weeks. But let's look at the text. Let's start at verse 1, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So let's unchurchify that word or that phrase. Let's unchristianize it and just talk about this. He's talking about Christians. A person who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is born into the family, God's forever family. You've been adopted by God. And if I could just say as a side note, you don't get unadopted by God. And so that is purposeful because all the way back in chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And a Christian, one who has been born of God, they love God and they love others. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. And last, last week, we talked about this logic that John had laid out for us, and how that logic is 
flawless, that you can't, if you don't love a brother or sister in Christ whom you can see, it is impossible for you to love the God whom you cannot see. So to say that we love God but we don't love others is an impossibility. And actually, John says this, you're a liar. If you say you love God and you don't love others, you're actually a liar. And so what he's doing here is he's reiterating the truth that he has written out or that he was speaking in chapter 4. And our love for God guides our love for others. And we'll long to see or to seek the ultimate good in others. If we love God the way that he has loved us, we'll ultimately seek the good in others. Yeah, Don't confuse you. that with a love that is Don't confuse that with a love that is condoning. Don't confuse that with a love that is um, a self-help kind of love. Because the true love that God has for us is that God doesn't want us to stay the type of person that we are now. He wants to transform us from the inside out. So as we love others, we have that desire or that longing to see that happen in other people's lives. For me to say that I love you and not call out sin in your life is unloving. For you to say that you love me and not call out sin in my life is not loving. It's a passive love. It's a worldly type of love. Okay, so don't, don't get those two types of love confused here. And because of that, we have this love for each other. We want to seek the ultimate good in others. There's this really interesting uh, word, two words that are at play here. One of them is love, the other one is humility. Because if you look at Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, if we have this mind in us that is in Christ Jesus that we will not only look for our own interests or look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's a humility in our love where we put other person's needs in front of our own. That's how we show that we love other people. So a Christian, one born of God, loves God. What in the world? Is this catching on everything? <laughs> I don't know if it'll work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Here's the second one. A Christian is one who, oh, but can you get past this? Will this bother you the rest of the morning? I'm past, I'm kind of past already. It could bother you. Okay. A person, a Christian, uh, one born of God, obeys his commandments. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. See, another thing that John is saying here, and he was fighting the Gnostic belief system, that you can say that you love God and live life however you want. And John's saying that's actually an impossibility, and we have to be okay with that. It might be hard for us to say that, or to believe that, but we have to be okay with it because it's in the scriptures that when we love God, we show that we love God by loving others and obeying his commandments. We can't say that we love God and live however we want. It's an impossibility. And that's hard when we have people saying the Bible is just a book of rules of do's and don'ts. And you have to, and you get to say absolutely. Because when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And when God says I want you to do something, it's because he wants to lavish his blessing on you. So when he calls on you or commands you to do something, 
or commands us to not do something. It's for our good. And so when we say we love God, we obey His commandments. So we have to ask the question, why do I keep commandments anyway? Why would I keep the commandments? And if you sit there, and, and as, as I would ask that question, why, why do I keep commandments? Do I keep the commandments because it's my duty? Or let me say it this way, I have to keep the commandments. If someone were to ask me, do I have to keep the Ten Commandments? What would you say? Yes, you have to keep the commandments. You should keep the commandments. You should have a Sabbath. You should have a day of rest. There should be some time in there where you have set things aside in your life and you're having Sabbath rest. There should be no other gods before you. You should honor your father and mother. You shouldn't kill. He said, yes, you have to. What if I told you you don't have to? Then you get to. Because the love that you have for God, he gives you this freedom to live this victorious, joyful Christian life. And you get to follow his commands. You get to, he's giving you an opportunity in relationship with him to obey his very best gifts for you and for me. But do we oftentimes look at these commandments and and we're afraid that if we don't keep them, the angry God is going to shoot lasers of lightning at us if we do something bad or if we do something horrible. Or or maybe I do it just because I want to be a good Christian. Question is, do I obey God's commandments simply because I love God? God's commandments sh- should be kept simply because of our love for Jesus. This is the one that gave us in the first place. A Christian loves God by keeping his commandments. Here's another one. A Christian, here's another characteristic of a Christian that John's laying out here. A Christian is an overcomer. This is a beautiful one. Verse 3, for this is is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Don't separate what I just said about being obedient to God's commands from this idea that we are overcomers because a very important word that John uses here when it comes to God's commands. God's commands are not burdensome. If we don't love God, or if we think that our commandments are, we follow them because it is our duty to follow them, then they will become burdensome. They'll become happy. But if we love God and out of the joy that we have of serving God and obeying God, those commands aren't burdensome. They're actually quite light. And Jesus says that, my my burden is easy. So connect that with this next idea that Christians are overcomers. But not in of your own strength. Uh, some of you might have a, a similar personality to mine that we're fixers. When there's a problem, we just want to fix things. And uh, I was uh, working on, I wasn't working on the car. Josh Dillon was working on my car. I was watching him work on the car. 
And, and, and there were some things that were getting frustrated and some things that weren't working yesterday. Still don't have it all figured out. And, and uh, at one point in time, we're both inside the car and are, are, we're kneeling on the concrete outside, but we're leaning into the car on the seats. And he looks at me and he says, have you been praying about this? And I said, no. <laughs> Fix this. I want this thing fixed, you know, let's overcome the problem, you know, and I, and I want to fix this, and, and, and you might have that personality, but, but a, a child of God, a person born of God, uh, tackles the world from a place of victory, but it's not from us trying to fix things, he's actually very particular, you can see here, he says, your victory comes from something very particular, verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it that overcomes the world? It's my faith in God. It's my faith in the fact that God's promises are absolutely true, and I can cling to those promises. That when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because God is with me. We're overcomers. We fight from a place of victory. And I really like uh, R. Kent Hughes' uh, reminded me, uh, he has written this book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, and he reminded me, and I want to remind you this morning, of uh, a, a, a very clear understanding of the philosophy of the world. And so, uh, follow along as, as I read, I think the quote's up on the screen. The world, dressed as the prostitute infidelity, comes near me, and alluringly offers me her hand. The world whispers seductively in my ear. The world promises me worldly pleasure. She flirtingly lies to me by telling me that real joy comes from loving her and not from loving my Savior Jesus. The world is a powerful seductress. How can I win the victory over her temptations? The world wants you to think that the best life now is to live a comfortable life. To live a life that heads into retirement. A life that can get me to a place of feeling good and not feeling any pain. And not ever having to go through any type of suffering whatsoever. That's not the way that this life works. I love that John Piper says it like this. Every day. You wake up at war. And we lose sight of that as Christians, don't we? We want a comfortable, easy, no bad day type of life. No suffering, no physical suffering, no emotional suffering, no relational suffering. We want to do everything we can to get rid of pain in our life and to live this joy-filled life from a place of victory. And yet these things come into our lives that are difficult for us to handle. And we think that this worldly philosophy that we should live this comfortable life is our best life now. And John is, John's saying the exact opposite of that is true. That we have to fight every single day is a fight against the battle of the philosophies of this world. And we think it's coming from outside of us. But it's not. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that we fight the battle against the world because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of my life. The reason I wake up at war every morning is because I want to do what I want to do every single day. 
I want to roll over and grab my phone, and the first thing I do is scroll through the news to see what's happening in the world, or scroll through Facebook to see if I got enough likes on my post I made last night. Or Instagram, or whatever. We're, we're at war. Now what's interesting here is, is that John is saying that we fight from a place of victory. Christians, we're not fighting a war that's going to be lost, ultimately. The war has already been won. Um, so I want to give you an illustration that actually came out of our connection group. One, just one of the reasons I personally love uh, being in a connection group, and I love our connection group, and here's my uh, shameless plug. If you're not in a connection group, get into a connection group, because you're going to have great discussions about things that are being taught on a Sunday morning. And we actually been talking about this idea of being in a battle, uh, and how much... It, we love God, and God loves us, and yet this daily life is a battle. And, and David Babb gave us this beautiful illustration. And uh, I told him I would actually couldn't steal it and use it, but since I used his name, I'm not actually stealing it, uh, because I'm giving him the kudos for saying But he used a, a, an illustration that he had gotten several years ago about American history, when it comes from fighting from a place of victory already. And this is what he said. Back in about 1944, uh, it, it, during World War II, uh, the Battle of Normandy took place. It was that battle that turned the tide, and the Allied forces knew that they had won World War II, that the, the tide was going to turn completely at Normandy. And yet they know even though the victory was theirs on that day, there were going to be several more battles to fight. <coughs> That's what happened at the cross. When Jesus came and died on the cross, it said, the Bible says that he crushed the head of Satan. He crushed death. Death no longer has the victory. We, we fight from a place of victory, and yet there's a battle to fight every single day. But we fight from a place of victory. A Christian is an overcomer. A Christian, here's the next one, a Christian believes that Jesus is the Son of God. <coughs> a Christian believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now this is going to be really interesting because he kind of uh, he, he takes a turn here in, in how he's speaking to the group. And, and uh, what John does is he actually places us, or so if you could do this as well, he, he actually places us in, in, a, in a courtroom. Okay? And so what John does is he says, Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm going to call several witnesses to that. And so this is what he does in the courtroom in, in verses 6 through about verse uh, 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there is three that testify, and you hear that word several times, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that He has born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So here we are sitting in the courtroom. John has Jesus sitting next to him, and he calls witnesses to the stand to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And the very first witness that he brings to the stand, this is going to seem a little bit weird, is he calls to the stand water and blood. That's weird. Right? How does water and blood prove that Jesus is the Son of God? I can tell you that there have been scholars that have argued over the years and debated about the possibility of what this water is. Uh, some scholars believe that the water was when Jesus, uh, when his side was pierced, that blood and water poured out from his side. They've been talking about the water there. Others are talking about the water, I don't want to gross you out, the water that comes when you have a baby. Your water breaks. And so some believe that when Jesus was born, this is what they're talking about, that he was born of water. But it's of uh, my opinion and belief and, and many others uh, that, that what the, John's talking about here, because he also uh, shares it in his gospel um, explicitly. He doesn't talk, John doesn't talk about the birth of Christ in, in the book of John, but what he does talk about um, in, in length is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Because it was the beginning of his public ministry when God says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So the testimony is the water of baptism that Jesus is the Son of God. So what's the blood? That that was sacrificed on the cross to cover your sin and my sin. And he said, that's the first thank you so much for coming, water and blood. You may step down. I have no further questions for you. Next one up. Come on up. It's the Spirit. It's the Holy <laughs> Why, why, how do you have the Holy Spirit come and, and, and testify that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, Jesus actually says in John chapter 15, verse 26, that the Spirit will come and testify of me. Jesus is the one that says that the Holy Spirit testifies of me. And then you back up one chapter, it's chapter 15, verse 26, to chapter 14, verse 26. And it says that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that I, Jesus, have taught you. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes in and enters into your life and illuminates or shines out the Scripture so that you and I can understand it and testifies to you and to me that Jesus is the Son of God. And he said the water, the blood, and the Spirit, they all agree. Jesus is the Son of God. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming. I have no further questions for you. You may step down. Now I would like to call to the stand. Get this. Do you know who the connection is? Look at the text. It's God himself as the Father. We received the testimony in verse 9 of men. The testimony of God is greater. Okay, so you've heard from me, John, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the testimony of men. Let me just tell you the testimony of God. That he is born a son and his name is Jesus. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son. Earlier in John chapter 3, says that God gave us his son, born of God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And God testifies that Jesus is his son. God the Father, could you imagine John saying this? God the Father, thank you so much for coming. You may step down. 
you know what? I don't need you to testify any further. Oh, but we're not done yet. The next one is whoever, whoever has been born of God, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have a relationship with Jesus, and you've been adopted by God into his forever family, would you please take the stand? Because what's happening inside of you is the testimony of the Holy Spirit transforming you from the inside out. And so for everyone else to see, all you need is to say, look at what God has done in my life. He's transformed me from the inside out. I'm not the same person I was. How awesome is it, Pastor Josh, that you read for Advent from Ephesians chapter 2 that I was dead in my trespasses and sin. But I've been made alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. It's your own life that should be a testimony that God loves us. But he's really, really tight here. Because in that last verse, he says, those who love Jesus or know Jesus, they love God. And those who don't, look at, look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. doesn't look like any gray area. I think I'm a Christian. I think they're a Christian. They either have the Son or they don't have the Son of God. He's not done. He still calls another witness, our, our conversion. And then he calls eternal life to the stand. Eternal life, would you please take the stand in verse 11? And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. I, he says this, I've written all of these things. So that verse 13 is kind of that umbrella culmination verse of all of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're struggling with this idea, I, I just, I don't know if I, if I have eternal life. If you... If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you may intimately know. It's that word, gnosko. It's that intimate relationship. You can know that you have eternal life. A Christian, let me give you another one. A Christian prays vigorously for those who are far from God. A Christian prays vigorously those who are far from God. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. We can be confident in our prayer that if we ask anything, he will hear us. Wrong answer. Thanks for playing. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God hears every prayer that we pray. If we pray, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, again, according to his will, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, there's a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. That there, John, there's a lot of stuff there. And there's actually been a crazy amount of time arguing about what is this sin that leads to death that we shouldn't even be praying over for other people. 
Is it the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We speak something against the Holy Spirit, and that's a that's an unforgiven unforgiven sin, a sin that leads to death. Is it is it a, is it any is it just a really bad sin that I've committed murder against someone, or did I have an idol in my life? What is it? Can, can I with without sounding over simplistic? What if John didn't tell us that because it's not the main point of the text? We don't sit around arguing about what sin is the unforgivable or what sin is if it's going to lead to death. A person who loves Christ sees someone far from God and pleads with God on their behalf that they would come to Christ. No matter what that sin is going on in your life, no matter what sin is going on in my life or my friend's life or my family's life, what if it's not about that sin? It's not listed here. What if it's about that type of praying? John's talking about being an intercessor here, to being a prayer warrior. Christian, are you, are you a prayer warrior? Are you an intercessor for those who are far from God? Have you ever, have you ever been down on your knees, face down, crying, crying out to God with tears in your eyes for someone in your family or friends who is far from God? Christians vigorously pray. For those who are far from God. Uh, let me give you another one. A Christian does not keep on sinning. Now remember, this is a re-amplification of something that took place in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, when he says uh, Christians don't find themselves in a lifestyle of habitual sin. That's, that's the correct translation of that. And so he continues on with that line of thought. We know that everyone who has been born of God, does not keep on sinning, doesn't find themselves in a lifestyle of habitual sin. But he, Jesus, who was born of God in human form, protects him, protects you, protects me from keeping on sinning, and the evil one does not touch him. That is an incredible verse for you, Christian, that, that, uh, when, that as you do not keep on sinning, you have someone protecting you or keeping you from habitually sinning. And he actually says that Satan makes, or that, that Christ makes you untouchable from Satan. What a beautiful verse to know that God protects us and the evil one doesn't touch us. Here's another one. We have just a couple, more, a couple more. Here's another one. Uh, a Christian belongs to God. Like, well, that seems like a no-brainer, but he repeats it. Another reamplification moment in verse 19, when he says, we know that we are from God. You can know that you are from God. And what John is saying here, because the next thing that he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember, the person managing and sending the message of this world is Satan. The one lining up its philosophies and its ideologies, the one managing this world, the one managing the messages of this world is the evil one. Our text says that. You can believe that to be true. So what John is saying here is we know that we are from God. There's a world that's run by Satan, but we are from God. What's he saying? 
In essence, he's saying that you and I are Christ followers. We are strangers and exiles in a foreign land. This place is not my home. This world is not my home. Is that really old song about this world is not my home? I was just a passenger. Okay. Uh, no, no second service uh, shot at that song. Um, belongs to God. It, in, in verses 18 through 20, he gives these three statements. We know that everything has been born of God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. And then here comes another characteristic of a Christ follower, a Christian, in verse 20. A Christian knows the truth. Knows the truth. And this one is important. We know that the Son of God has come. And that word come actually means come and is here. As if he were still coming. That he is ever present. What a beautiful thing to know that the Son of God has come and he is with us, ever present, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Remember, that's the discernment part, the spiritual gift, the spiritual discipline of discernment. A Christian knows the truth. What is John saying? John is saying, faith, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's another hymn, you know? Faith is the victory, faith is the victory. Overcome? Okay. Uh, not the second uh, service either. But, but uh, here he's saying, from that place of victory, that our faith isn't some kind of abstract and theoretical blind faith. Christian, you don't, you and I, we don't have faith in faith. Okay? Well, I just have faith that all things are going to work together for good. Those are all that I just have faith in faith. You have faith in God. And He's given you the victory to overcome the world. There's a big difference. He says, You know the truth, and you can know the truth. Your faith, my faith, isn't some abstract, ethereal, theoretical, pie-in-the-sky, cloudy, mystic type of faith. It's a faith in the belief that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, the Redeemer of my life, the Savior of the world. And he eternally exists in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's my Savior and my Redeemer. And it's that faith that changes everything. Know the truth. And here's the last one. A Christian fixes their attention and affection on Jesus. A Christian fixes their attention and affection on Jesus. John does something, but even uh, scholars believe this, this really weird thing, and not actually, what they say, Johannan in authorship. This just doesn't seem John-like. Uh, for him to end this letter with a sermon with a command, an imperative. But that's exactly what he does. And, and, and some people look at this, and, and you can have this tendency to go, all of this stuff, where he's talking about the love of God and the characteristics of a Christian. And then he says this, little children, he lovingly pulls in his crown, and he says, little children, keep or guard yourself from idols. Out of all this stuff, it's been written about loving God and loving others, and if we love God the way that God loves us, we'll love others, we'll keep his commandments. And now at the very end, the very last thing he's going to say is keep yourselves from idols. Why do he say that? 
Because last words stick. And if you back up and see this love that God has for us and the love that we want to pour out to others because God loves us, John is saying you can't love God and love other things the same. John's actually going back to the very first commandment that we get to keep. You'll have no other gods before me. Just, to, just like it's impossible for us to not love those who we see, because then it would be impossible to love God who we cannot see. He's saying it is impossible to say that you worship me with everything that you have and with, with everything that you are, that God is the one that you ultimately love and still have idols in your life. You're a liar. Can't happen. Now, what I think is really interesting here is that uh, John doesn't create a list of idols. We don't want to have any statues in my house and anything. I, I don't burn incense and, and, you know, and bow down before an idol in my house and burn candles and pray and do all of these different things like they do in uh, Far Eastern countries. And I don't do any that's weird stuff. <clears throat> but we do bow down to other things, right? Like our social media. But let's just hit a few. Like our careers. Um, like our families. Like our children. Those are the most important things that we love. Like our pets. What if it's just the idea of love? I love being loved by someone. And that's my highest thing. My marriage is the most important love on the planet. Maybe I've hit one of those for you. Maybe I haven't. There's a reason there's not a list here. It's because we have to ask the question, is there any, because here's what an idol is, anything that we love more than we love God? It's plain and simple. And I can, I can easily go day in and day out and say I love God, but I love some other things more. Maybe it's some materialistic things. I love my house more than I love God. And, and here's, a, here's a measuring tool to that. It's where you spend your money. It's where, for some of you that still have checkbooks, millennials on, you know, don't, don't. But, you know, it's where you spend your money. It's where you write your checks. That's a pretty good gauge as to looking at where, where are my idols in this life. Another place to look is at your calendar, at your schedule. Where am I spending most of my time? It's so funny to me that we can spend, I can spend, hours watching football, but it's so hard for me to spend hours in my Bible. It's so easy, and, and, and football's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. We're going to see some things happen today that, that have been prophesied by the, by Pastor Kelsey. We're going to see some beautiful things today. So, so I'm not, but is it an idol? Here's how it hit home for me over these last couple of weeks. This has been this has been true for me, and so I'm just can I just be honest, I'll just be honest with you too. too. Um, and I found this even today uh, in, in having some conversations. Um, when I'm in here at the church, what's the thing that I talk about the most? I talk about sports more than anything else, and especially here. Why would I be talking about the love of God and asking people how we're doing? What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? How can I love you? What, what can I do to show you that I care? It's 
instead of I'm consumed with sports that have gone on. In fact, I'm standing before you today having gone to a Michigan-Illinois game where Michigan lost, and, and uh, I was harassed on the way out and uh, for wearing my amazing blue stuff. And, and I and see, see, just see how easy it is to talk about that kind of stuff. Is it an idol? Would you close your... What if, uh, um, Michael, could you put that list up there? These are nine marks of a Christian. It's not an exclusive list. It's not an all-encompassing list. And so if I were to say, uh, this is the list of what it means to be a Christian, it actually can't be just the list that means that you're a Christian or not. The question to ask is if there was this piece of paper in heaven, there's, there's not. But if there was this piece of paper in heaven that said, name, Jared Bartholomew, citizenship, heaven, <laughs> from a child of God, citizenship, heaven, evidence of his citizenship, what would be listed out on that piece of paper? Would any of these nine things be listed if, if God had to, he doesn't have this list. Don't, don't panic about that. But, but, if, but if there's this piece of paper that says, Jared says that he loves God and that he loves others and, and because he surrendered his life to Christ and Jesus is his Lord and Savior, he's, he's got this relationship. He's been born of God. This evidence, what is it? Because it should be evident. Which one of those, let's just look at the list, which one of those is evident in your life and which ones of those aren't evident in your life? Some of them are, are very easy. When you say you're born of God and you believe, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you belong to God. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But do you love God and others because God first loved you? Do you obey His commandments because you have to or because you've got to? Do you live this life from a place of being an overcomer who has already experienced victory in the faith of Jesus Christ? Or does the world overcome you? Do you have any idols? Anything that can be placed above who God is in the worship of God? This is how John ends his text. This is how he ends his sermon, asking the question, what do you look like? What evidence is there that you are a child of God? And it's a great question to ask. And, and uh, unfortunately, this, uh, all nine of these lists, uh, things in this list don't end up on my piece of paper right now. And it may not end up on your piece of paper right now. But it's just a great opportunity for us to look at that and go, I'm a child of God. What is he doing in my life to transform me and make me more like his son?